please mark number 781. That's been announced as a hymn of encouragement that we'll sing just a bit later in the service this morning. What a delightful and great blessing it is to be able to gather together on this first day of the week. As always, we're thankful for every single individual that's here, and we trust that our service, and as much as it's in accordance to the things of the Bible, will be uplifting to us, but more importantly, it'll be a glorification unto God. We're thankful for our membership, for our visitors that have come our way, for every individual. You may notice that the title of the lesson this morning has to do with worship innovations. And as was read a moment ago from Colossians 3.17, we'll cast a spotlight in just a moment on some of the appreciations of that passage. But we'll build up a few thoughts somewhat before we look in great detail at that verse. What does the word innovation mean? Well, you'll notice on this introductory slide, my intent was to present some basics, some introductory thoughts that may help us and guide us throughout our service in terms of our study time this morning. Is there any question or doubt that the purity of the church is of incredible importance? Jesus in Ephesians 5.27, it is said on that occasion of the church that He formed it without spot or blemish or any such thing. The church, inasmuch as the Lord bought it, He established it, He founded it. He did so with a perfect design. He did so without any flaws, any blemishes, any discrepancies concerning it. It was fashioned perfectly and entirely in the way that He intended and that church, of course, is such that it should be our desire to maintain it in that purity. Wasn't it true that several times in the New Testament it was admonished of those first century congregations, and so it is of us as well, that we too would maintain that purity. You'll notice furthermore then on that slide, inasmuch as the church began in such a powerful and pure and directed way, that now brings us to consider innovations. Partly the reason I put it in bold-faced type was this. I suppose it has been a challenge. I suppose it has been a matter of concern for many ages in light of those that would wish to do the will of God. By and large, you and I, at least in secular society, we find innovations a good thing. If somebody invents something or figures out a new way to do something, we often adopt it, encourage it, and make use of it ourselves in our lives. What about worship? Does worship need innovation? There are those in our modern day who are quick to say that worship has become stale. The worship of the typical congregation has become rather outdated. The worship of the typical congregation has become rather lifeless and empty and vain. It needs to be innovated. You're not going to ask over the next few moments this morning, what about that? Is that a proper attitude? Should we embrace innovations in order to spice up, if you please, the characteristics of worship? One of the things you and I must remember at the outset is what is worship? By definition, worship is acts of reverence directed to God. Acts of reverence directed to God. And as that thought is developed within the pages of the New Testament, it says much to us about the character and about the attribute of worship. On that slide then we come to this definition. This is what a typical dictionary 
will present for a definition of innovation. The introduction of something new, a new idea, a new method, a new device. And as I said, we are rather accustomed to the concept of an innovation in our modern way of living. But our question today isn't that. What about innovations in worship? Let's close that slide then like this. As we ask about innovations in it, let's begin like this. It really isn't too difficult to observe a number of modern-day innovations with respect to worship. In fact, some of them are rather easy to see. You open the Herald Citizen newspaper and read the religion section that appears on Friday. Or you look at, say, a number of television presentations of a worship service in some form. Or maybe you discuss with a friend or with an acquaintance some characteristic features of worship. And it may not at all be unusual for discussions to include things like these. The place of drama in worship, in which a given group of people as a part of worship, there may be a skit, a play, a performance, or some other consideration whereby this performance or presentation is to be noted. It may either be in real time or it may be a presentation of, let's say, something that occurs in some distant place by virtue of the Internet. Not only that, what about this consideration? The almost exclusive utilization of emotion. That is to say, allowing emotion to be basically the thorough and complete guide with respect to worship. If it excites my spirit... If it feels good, then surely that's acceptable to God. We're going to ask, is that a reasonable consideration? What about the next one? Maybe you have heard of congregations in which there may be matters in which there are dedication services for infants. To say that differently is a part of the worship. Babies, infants, boys and girls are brought to the front and in some kind of official ceremony are dedicated and that's hailed as a part of that worship. What about the bottom? Pet dedication ceremonies is a part of worship. You bring your dog, your cat, your turtle, your snake, your gerbil, your hamster, whatever you've got. And we will in fact pronounce a blessing of God upon this animal as a part of our intended worship to God. That's not that far-fetched in terms of what you and I may well appreciate. Our question is, these things that are hailed in this way as innovations lead us to some additional examples. What about the musical aspect of worship? There's no question that music has a vital part to play in worship as it's revealed within the pages of the Bible. But may we ask some of these observations. The clapping of hands in worship, would that be appropriate? Now, you and I can pause, no doubt, and think much about this. And maybe an individual who has become rather involved emotionally in that service lends him or herself to the performance of this, which is basically the clapping of hands or other gestures or gyrations what about if we add this one? A praise team. Are you aware that there are in fact 
a rather common consideration in which there are many congregations in which something like this is done. There are some people who sing a little better than others, at least in terms of comparison to the notes in the book. Now notice, God is more interested in the music coming from our heart and we sing with spirit. But we all know some people can read music better than others. Some people have a voice that permits them to sing four-part harmonies in a way that's no doubt very beautiful. And what some congregations do is they select certain individuals. Here's a good alto singer. There's a good tenor singer. There's a good bass singer. There's a good soprano. We'll put those four people up by themselves. We may even let them stand and we'll give them microphones. They'll be the primary singers and everybody else will just join them. Is that okay? We're going to wonder about that in just a moment. That's called a praise team. Why don't we note this? What if we use a mechanical instrument of music, one or more of them? We all understand how historically such matters have happened and developed. Instances in which not just an organ, but perhaps a whole band including a guitar, a piano, a drum, and maybe even several more instruments. Innovations in worship. You'll notice next on that slide, those kinds of considerations, besides even the matter of music, can lead us to other matters. What about the participants in leading worship? Women? Not only preaching, but leading prayers, doing any other aspected part of worship? These questions are good ones. Maybe this would be a proper time to come near the bottom of that slide and interject the following. One of the things you and I learn, if we learn anything from a study of both Old and New Testament, is that God takes worship exceedingly seriously. He does not merely accept any and everything that's presented to Him. He basically told that to Israel many, many times. You and I know well many examples are found in the Word of God in which individuals offered Him something. But He said, I will not accept it. Amos 5 verses 21 to 24 is maybe one of the plainest ones. On that occasion, God described in the very words of the prophet Amos, the people, the children of Israel were coming together and offering to God. They were offering without a doubt. The text says they did. But God said, I won't accept it. Now, you and I might pause to notice. Doesn't that seem a bit specific on the part of God? Here are individuals who are offering Him something, but He didn't accept it. Today, worship in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord must be done in the way that God says He'll accept, or we have no reason to expect He'll accept it. Worship is serious business. No wonder you and I must approach it with a mindset and an attitude that is consistent with that seriousness. We mustn't just show up, take care of an hour, and go our way and suppose that that's good enough. Worship takes preparation in the mind. It takes a specific set of actions. It takes our mind engaged in those actions. How often have we noted... I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. A moment ago, we sang three songs, and all three of them were powerful, beautiful, and penetrating. 
Did we mean what we said? Every one of those songs were amazing. The sentiments were powerful and directed, and they expressed great truths. May we have sung them intending exactly everything that was included in the wording of that song. Because we were praising God as we sang them. When we prayed a moment ago, was your mind and mind in it? Or as the gentleman was leading us, was I thinking about lunch? Thinking about going to the lake this afternoon? Thinking about work tomorrow? Thinking about a ball game or some such thing? If so, I erred. We must give the fullness of our intent to strive to pray with the Spirit and pray with the understanding so that when that prayer ends, we could also be able to say, Amen, let it be so. May it be so. All these innovations in worship, you notice they have tended to cheapen worship, to turn it into what merely is a production, a play, a presentation, what makes those who attend feel better or good about it. But that has missed the point. Did you note the definition? Acts of reverence directed to God. The primary interest is, is God pleased? Not if I'm pleased. Is He satisfied with this worship? Is it done in accordance to His will? In John 4 verse 24, this dramatic statement is found. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. There are several things about that verse that capture our attention, one of which is anybody who would worship. So this is characteristic of everybody who every more should attempt to worship. It says they must do it using two things, in spirit and in truth, meaning that their heart must be engaged. They are thrilled with what they're doing. Now, that's one of the things about the worship, and you and I long to come to those aspects. These periods of time when our heart is engaged, we're doing what in some sense God made us to do. We're worshiping Him. This world brings so many complications and negative things that challenge our positive attribute and attitude and will, if we allow it, to even shake our confidence but when we come to worship, we can focus exclusively on the God that made us and the salvation offered through His Son, what happened at the cross, and the power and strength available to us today. Worship is meaningful. It sets us on course for a week of service to God. Now tomorrow we won't assemble the way we are today. And Tuesday we will not be assembling the way we are today. But the hope is that by this morning and tonight, we will be filled to the brim with sufficient recharging character and strength that we shall make it until Wednesday when we can come together again. Worship services are critical. And in fact, they're commanded of us. If we're to please God, we must remember this passage in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So when you come together to worship, make sure to not forsake it. That brings us back to these innovations. So with all of these things charging and challenging us, let's continue our study like this. 
First of all, it would seem to me in light of that definition from a moment ago, that definition of innovation, we need to be very specific what it is we're considering here. After all, the key idea, the key element, if you please, in that definition of innovation was that word new, N-E-W, specifically in this way. I will use this word innovation today, in the course of this lesson at least, to refer to those practices that take place in worship that themselves are not consistent with the Bible. That is to say, things that are done without biblical authority. Those are what I mean by these words, innovations. And therefore, in that lie, might you and I notice the key idea, the certain thing that must rest on our heart is we must always ensure that what we do in worship is authorized in this book. Colossians 3.17, and that was our lesson text today, says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Now that clearly includes our worship. So whatever we do from the time this worship service began, shortly after 1030, until the time it concludes, about 1130 or shortly thereafter, we need to ensure that that's done in Harmony with the authority vested in the Word of God. That leads us to some of these observations. You and I are told that we must worship as well as live our daily life in an attribute of faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. Therefore, if you and I, as an individual of faith, we understand that must develop from the Word of God. And so, do we find in the Word of God, do we find in the pages of Scripture, do we find in the revelation from heaven things that authorize what we, I listed at the outset of this lesson today? Now, we must again be very earnest and very serious. It is not our desire to make laws for God. We don't want to outlaw what He allows but we also are never willing to accept what He condemns. And so it is in Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Let's now do the following. Let's divide some of those listings I made earlier into the following categories and look in a little bit more detail, admittedly briefly, at those things that were found on that occasion. First of all, is worship a time of human drama? Is it a time to overwhelm and use as the basis for it a presentation of drama? And you and I must, as we peruse the 27 New Testament books, find the answer to be no. When Paul went on the missionary journeys and the books that are written in the New Testament, we find things that lead us to this. God's a spirit, and those that worship Him must do so in truth and in spirit. And when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, and highlight an attribute of worship directed always in a way that was orderly and in a way that consisted in what God revealed. We find no biblical example. We find no command. 
about these things that would include dramatic performances, that would include these other modern-day innovations, the goal of which it seems is to capture the attention of people and turn the worship into an entertainment service. You know, there are articles that in fact give instructions. This is how you make worship more entertaining. This is how you make it more inviting. Now all of us, if we are as God would have us to be, we are already excited about being here. We look forward to worship because it gives us that opportunity, that set-aside time of assembly in which we open our heart in thanksgiving unto God and we praise Him, extolling His greatness and honoring His will. But never do we wish to turn worship into merely what satisfies my fleshly desires. Now, there are a lot of people that like to watch movies, and I guess we all do to some extent. And yet, worship is not a theatrical presentation. It never was, and it never will be. Not only that, what about emotion as the sole guide we mentioned earlier? It isn't difficult to find descriptions in which worship is highlighted as something in which the emotion of man is the sole guide. As long as you enjoy it, we're told, as long as you are engaged in it, surely God will like it. That philosophy is false from its core. Israel worshipped around a golden calf. Did God like it? We remember He didn't. He punished them and 3,000 of them died. Later in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1, again, the people of Israel were worshiping, but God didn't like it. Worship, you see, is not merely what must be guided by the way you and I feel about it. Your feelings and mine can be mistaken. They can be misplaced and misguided. In Jeremiah 17, verse number 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and who can know it? Isn't it then so that the heart can be misunderstood? Worship mustn't simply be based on our emotion. Now, without a doubt, given the fact that we worship in spirit, our emotion is involved. We can't just be lifeless. We should enjoy the singing. We should enjoy the praying. We should involve ourselves in the attributes of the worship, including the contribution of the Lord's Supper as we involve ourselves in it. Notice the emotional aspect of that is not centered on us, it's centered on doing what God says to do. And that thrills us. But thirdly, what about those baby dedication ceremonies we mentioned earlier? Some might make the argument, well, doesn't that sound so wholesome? Here's a precious, innocent child. There's no question about a precious and innocent child. What we're asking is, has God authorized that to be a part of worship? There are many things you and I can think of that in and of themselves would be good and wholesome, but God hasn't authorized them as a part of His worship. I would ask you to consider Ephesians 6 verse 4 and Proverbs 22 verse 6 both highlight obligations and responsibilities to parents but those aren't simply to be performed when the family assembles in a worship service. They're to be done all the time. Fathers, provoke not your children to, to wrath, 
but bring them up in the nurtured admonition of the Lord. Well, verses like that one and others, we don't find any example anywhere in the New Testament nor a command that permits it to turn the service into this emotional aspect of dedicating youngsters. And the same is true of pets. In fact, one does not find any mention anywhere of a pet in the worship services of the New Testament. Not in the book of Acts, nor in any of the books that follow it. And therefore, to take this attribute, and it's fine to have a dog or a cat or a pet, but we appreciate that they are humans. And we understand the fact that you and I worship God. They don't. They don't have immortal spirits. That's not what they are. And you and I understand so well that our worship is a heartfelt overwhelming of ourselves as we appreciate the direction of our heart toward God. That list continued onward, though, like this. It turned our attention to musical matters. And I would submit that perhaps through the ages, no particular matter in the worship has caught the attention more than that of worship. Let's face it, human beings on the whole and in general like music. Think about how many genres of music there are. Everything from classical to bluegrass and everything in between. We like music. Many people are good at playing instruments. Should I use that as a part of worship? Those matters and those questions have been good ones for many, many years. Could I invite you to consider some of these observations? As far as I was able to find, the first mechanical instrument of music that was introduced into the worship of the New Testament church occurred in 1859 in Midway, Kentucky. There, a gentleman introduced a melodeon. He thought it would be a good idea. Now, his statement was that the singing of the, of the congregation was just atrocious. They just weren't very good at singing. And he thought that he could keep the time better and introduce this musical instrument into it and assist in the singing. The question, however, must be this. Does God authorize that? Now, you'll notice in those verses, this is what he says in Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, several things might be noted. First, he said, speaking to yourselves. Mechanical instruments can't speak. They can't talk. They cannot voice individual opinion and thought. Clearly, he's talking to people. And this is what he said. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. That's what a person can do. We sing. And he went on to say, making melody. That making melody in the original Greek language identifies the twitching or the twanging of the only statement that he makes, the heart. As you and I sing praise to God, we are twitching the strings of our heart, if you please, directing the heartfelt adoration and praise of our being to the God who made us. That's what our, the aspect of our music and worship is all about. And in Colossians 3.16, he discusses it even more. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. The kind of music then that is a part of Christian worship is able to teach and it's able to admonish, neither of which any instrument can do. And not only that, it is sung, that's the word that the Holy Spirit used, and so you and I, with excitement, sing. Because that's what God says He wants. Isn't it a rather interesting thing to focus some attention on that? When your brothers and sisters in Christ and mine assembled over a thousand nine hundred years ago, they did the very same thing you and I did this morning. There were no mechanical instruments of music to be found. They sang. That's what the text says. The church in Corinth did it. The church in Colossae did it. The church in Ephesus did it. They sang. And when you turn to the Hebrew letter in Hebrews 2.12, it highlights that when the church assembles, you sing. And so even the Hebrew congregations also enjoyed the same practice. Worship innovations, not so much. God has told us what He wants in worship, and you and I do greatly err if we think we could improve it. Because how can we improve the desire of a perfect God? It's our business to do what He says the way He said to do it for the reason He said to do it. Let's look at the next one. We noted there were some other more modern innovations, changes in one way or another in regard to the worship. The inclusion, let's say, of female leadership. That's only one example. One could have listed others. All of those would fall under that heading of innovations. Because in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and following, God says who He wants the leaders to be. And it is not that we're against women. It's just that that's what God says He wants and He demands. Our desire then in light of these worship innovations is to perhaps feel a note of sadness. The modern religious world in its desire to rest upon emotion, to rest upon what it thinks is the better course of action as opposed to what the Bible says, that's never a good idea. Let's close that slide then like this. Closing it the way we began it. In Ephesians 5 verses 25 and following, Paul gives us an inspired description of the church. And that church is said to be without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing. Blemishless. It had no imperfections. If you and I would continue to desire to be as He would have us to be, we still will follow the perfect pattern and worship Him in the way that we know that He wants. And so in conclusion to this lesson... These innovations are bad things. We simply wish to worship God the way He has wanted it done now for almost 2,000 years. And may I say, anything that's new in light of worship is not true, and anything that's true is not new. It's at least as old as the revelation of the New Testament. And so you and I, in earnestness, in ardency, and in love thrill at the thought of worshiping God, not by modern-day innovations, but 
in the words of John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. I hope that as we have at least reflected somewhat on the significance, the importance, the crucial nature of worship this morning, we've been reminded how special these times really are. In God's infinite wisdom, He ordered His people to assemble and to worship. Surely in that infinite wisdom of His, He knew that was the best. It would keep people always through all the cultural changes and all the whimsies and fancies of the change of man. It will keep them anchored to what never changes. Your children and mine, your grandchildren and mine, your great-grandchildren and mine, if God allows the world to stand, will worship, if they worship in truth, the same way we worship today. I hope that comforts your heart and mine. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. It may be that there's someone in this audience that's not a Christian. If that be the case, you can't worship Him because you haven't turned your heart over to Him yet. You aren't a member of His kingdom. You're not a citizen in His army. Don't you want to be? If you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right and you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you know that you're a sinner, and you know what you need to do, then you know enough to obey the gospel. Now, you may not know a great deal, but let me assure you, you will grow by leaps and bounds. You've got to put Him on first and let Him help you. Today, His plan of salvation is just what it was almost 20 centuries ago. You've got to believe in Him. Now, that's not a half-hearted belief. You've got to believe with all your heart that He is the Son of God. In Acts 8, 37, that's the very thing that Ethiopian nobleman believed. But that belief isn't enough. Because notice, repentance was commanded. Those who believed on the day of Pentecost were told to repent. That means you've got to change your mind in direction toward those activities that are sinful. Seek not to do them anymore. Try to replace those things in life with what's noble and good and scriptural. But upon that repentance, you need to confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. And at that point, you are a candidate ready to put your Lord on in baptism. Now notice, that's not anything that the elders here do or I do. We don't have the power. It's not our church. It's the Lord's church. He said He'll add you to it when you're baptized. That text in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, remind us of that truth. If you're ready to do that today, don't let anything hold you back. We'd be happy to help you in your response to that gospel invitation. If you have become a Christian, though, but you've lost your fervor with respect to worship, maybe it has become just simply an hour of ritual, of habit, a couple of times a week. If that's true, your life needs to be reinvigorated with what worship is all about. If we could pray for your strength, if we could pray for your encouragement, we'd be delighted to do that, too. Any way we could help you today, we'd like to do that. But we would invite you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.